Joyful Sex Education, we provide the tools to foster sex-positive consciousness. Thank you for joining us here on the Pleasure Principle Podcast. Today, you're listening to Sexability, Part 2, where you'll hear more about my experience with that multiple sclerosis episode that was never supposed to happen to me, as well as a fantastic interview with India Harville. All my life, I held fast to my body's strength, the power in my muscles that could run, the grace that would never let me fall. Even after the multiple sclerosis demon came to live in me, I pushed ahead, giving birth at home for a second time, completing a triathlon, continuing my education, starting one business, then a second, 15 years of both physical and mental, pushing, pushing, pushing on through. But this 2008 episode I've been talking about would overpower me, then ultimately transform me. The reality is that molten lead will sometimes fill my legs. Each step forward takes all I have. When it hits, all I can think about is immediately lying down in the middle of the sidewalk, in the grocery store aisle, anywhere. On moderately bad days, I will rely on what I used to call my loathsome cane. My favorite one is made of clear plexiglass. I like to think of it like Wonder Woman's invisible plane. When someone says, cool cane, I like to smile at them quizzically and ask, what cane? Oh my God, such denial. In the spring of 2008, the sensations crept throughout my body like dark alchemy, a tingling in my feet that burrowed ever deeper, spreading inwards and upwards, becoming dead wood. Eventually, my limbs became chunks of flesh and bone that served as pointless weights I was forced to carry with me throughout the day. The doctor put me on intravenous steroid treatments, 1,000 milligrams a day for five days in a row. The MS monster didn't flinch, but simply barreled along on its conquest of my body. Despite this, I kept working. At one point, I asked a friend to pick me up from the Ivy Clinic and take me to the airport so that I could get to a conference I was determined to attend. Another round of steroids followed, and then another. After four or five rounds within a month or so, the numbness had reached my neck. I'd lost command over the movement of my limbs, and a boa constrictor had taken up residence in my torso. His singular purpose was to squeeze my diaphragm tight, tight, tighter, until my breathing became conscious labor. At one point, I realized I could not move my fingers to type an email to my neurologist's nurse. When the doctor called back, he could only say, I've done all I can. My body would not withstand any more steroids. I'd risk damaging vital organs. So I lay in bed alone. Nothing more to do. But that night, I remembered that there were some Tibetan monks in town. They'd been booked up for months, but my friend Sally knew them well. I called her and asked her what she could do to get me in for a Buddhist blessing. She came through. Another friend of mine, Tina Marsh, who was herself battling a resurgence of breast cancer, picked me up to deliver me to the back of a little New Age bookstore on South Congress, where I would receive my blessing. Every bit of my attention 
was divided on two tasks. The careful placement of one foot in front of the other and breathing. One step, one breath. One step, one breath. My life became a meditation against my will. Step, breath, breath, step, step, breath, breath, step, breath, step, breath, step. I entered a blissfully dark, cool room that smelled of books and nog champa and eventually settled myself among plush pillows on a low chair. The monk spoke only Lhasa Tibetan and communicated through an interpreter, and he took me on a journey through a long meditation. I remember absolutely nothing of what the interpreter said, but when it was over, a quiet stillness settled over me, and the monk uttered the only words that he said to me in English, do not be afraid. The monk then tenderly placed a golden thread that he had been braiding into my open palm. The relief was complete, a rare kind of respite that comes with surrender to the inevitable. The next morning, the doctor called to say that in the night, he had remembered an experimental treatment that they were beginning to use for stubborn MS flares. It's called plasmapheresis. Basically, twice a day, they would take all the blood out of my body, separate it, toss my problematic white plasma, and then give me donated, friendlier white blood cells, and then put it all back in my body. Those 10 days in the hospital were comfortingly surreal. Because of the bow constrictor, my focus was always on my breath, which transported me into a meditative state that lasted for weeks. I needed assistance to eat, dress, or creep slowly to the bathroom. I made each one of these tasks physical therapy in and of itself. Each tiny movement received 200% of my attention. And after a week of treatments, I began to feel a slight improvement. I believe that the most important thing to understand is that I was forced to revisit my belief that I could make it on my own. I realized that that was an illusion and a deep limitation that I inflicted upon not only myself, but those around me. It is a gift to help someone in need and equally healing to receive. But for me, the ultimate lesson that has come out of the last 12 years of my life was that all of that upheaval, loss of control, and dark struggle eventually brought about cataclysmic change. But this transformation could only happen when I was able to do the extremely hard work of staying present with my emotions while remaining grounded in my body. I had to allow myself to feel the tremendous loss. I had to grieve. I've recently joined a group of people from all over the world to study a book called My Grandmother's Hands, Racialized Trauma and the Pathway to Mending Our Hearts and Bodies by Resma Minikin. It's intended to guide us through a difficult process, and I don't and I don't know exactly what's going to come up for me as I face my complacency over what he calls white body privilege. We've recently talked about clean and dirty pain. To me, dirty pain is clinging to the past or being paralyzed by the future. It is built of resistance and fear. Clean pain is the pain you feel when you see the difficult path to healing before you and commit to staying the course, refusing to flinch no matter how much it hurts. When relationships get hard, when we're overtaken by a pandemic, 
when we see our flawed society falling apart. We can always try to pretend it isn't happening. We can look away, but that is dirty pain. On so many levels right now, we're being called to build our capacity to remain present, even when we are overwhelmed by fear, grief, and the pain of transition. I believe that this is the key ingredient that creates fulfilling relationships, uplifting sexual experiences, and will guide humanity through the upheaval we're experiencing now to reach an evolved place of kindness and compassion for the earth and all her inhabitants. India Harville spoke with me about her experience as a somatic healer and a practitioner and how she guides people in the practice of embodiment. India Harville is an African-American, femme, queer, disabled, access-centered movement dancer, choreographer, body worker, and social justice educator. The unifying thread in her work is facilitating people working with their bodies as a vehicle for personal and collective growth and transformation. Ultimately, her work is about radical acceptance as a path to transcendence. India's work centers on the premise that all the ways our bodies show up in the world are perfect and worthy of existing, thriving, creating, ritualizing, and being witnessed. The last thing I'll tell you about India is that she holds a bachelor's in health psychology from New College of Florida and a master's in integrative medicine from the California Institute of Integral Studies. To find out more about her work, please visit her website at lovingtheskinyouarein.com. India Harville, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today on The Pleasure Principle. I just read your bio, so (laughs) I wanted to just jump right into the first question and ask how you got involved in the disability justice uh, community. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to chat with you. And regarding disability justice, I've been disabled my whole life, but I didn't really have an understanding of that until... 2011. And not everybody can pinpoint an exact moment, but I actually can. I was at the Films of Color Symposium that year, and Mia Mingus, um, who's a major disability justice activist, gave a keynote lecture on disability justice. And I felt like she kind of called me in, if people are familiar with that idea of sharing um, something that she's asking the community to look at, but in a very gentle and loving way. So she was talking about the politics of being pretty versus being real in a lot of ways. And um, not saying that being pretty isn't being real. Being pretty is a great thing. I'm a big fan. (laughs) However, um, the things that she was mentioning were places where we pretend that we're not in pain when we are or we sacrifice a part of ourselves um, and we don't acknowledge that we need something different for our bodies. Um, She also talked about the ways that we shy away from what we think are the ugly parts of ourselves 
including the disabled parts of ourselves or things that other people may not think are beautiful and how we not only do that to ourselves, but we do that to each other in community. So those were some of the things I was really sitting with and also just the ways I wasn't describing or sharing about what was going on in my body. I felt like I had been chronically ill as a child and I was starting to have some more serious neurological issues coming up, but I was doing everything I could to hide them because I was ashamed and I thought that they were not attractive parts of myself. And um, she challenged us to really be okay with being ugly and magnificent versus wanting to be beautiful and not authentic. And so those are some of the things that really stood out for me, even nine years later. What you're describing is very much when I'm kind of in the process of really facing right now over this past year, just the unbelievable energy that I put into pretending what was happening to me was not happening to me for years. Like what a tremendous waste of energy. And um, I don't know. And like you said, shame, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was really grateful that I met Mia when I did, because very shortly after that, I became so ill that I was really unable to leave my bed for a really long time. Maybe a year to two. I had issues with paralysis. And so I got to lie in bed and really contemplate, why am I valuable as a human being? I'm not producing anything. I can't do much. What else makes me valuable? Why do I need to talk about this part of my reality? And how did not talking about it contribute to the fact that I got as ill as I did? That's not a way of blaming myself for what happened. It's just an acknowledgement that if I had been asking more for my needs to have been met before that time, or if I had been okay with honoring more of what my body needed, I probably wouldn't have gotten that sick. I was probably going to get sick, but it may have not been that severe. And so I, I, lying in bed is a great place for contemplation. And um, Yeah. And that is kind of what I came to see in my experience of my illness as the gift of what happened to me. You know, when you're stuck in bed and can't do the things that you normally do, it's this time of introspection, which is interesting because happening right now when everyone is locked down at home is a real similar parallel to what you and I have experienced locked down in bed and being forced to look inside and feel your body however that's feeling and you know, listen to your mind. Um, I know that somatic practitioners like an EMDR therapist and other types of healers will occasionally ask people to think about where emotions live in their bodies. And so for a lot of our listeners, they maybe have never even thought about that concept, like emotions in your bodies. And can you talk about what that really means and um, why it's kind of an important skill to have? Sure. So I think um, I love to talk about this question and my answer might be just slightly different from other practitioners because I work with people who have disabilities. And so one thing that I think is important is that there's no 
universal entryway into this and there's no wrong or right. I like to preface this by saying everything that our body does and everything that our body used to do in the past to survive is a good mechanism. It's been functioning and it's kept us alive as long as it has. So I don't like to pathologize anything that our bodies do. It's good to sort of figure out what your body's doing and then maybe have some skill building where you can have more access to different choices. And so figuring out um, how your emotions live in your body, one thing that I like to have people start to do is to both notice when you're having an emotion and then try and notice what the sensations are. Sounds like what you're saying is that one of the reasons that this work is important when we're not dealing with emotions, we stuff them down and they can cause physical responses in our body, like tight shoulders or something like that. Is there any other reason this practice of finding where emotions live in our bodies is helpful or important? Oh, there's so many reasons why. Um, One thing is that kind of dealing with that backlog can open you up for more joy, more connection, um, being less triggered in the moment when something goes wrong. It also means that you can have more freedom and more choice in your life. So there are a lot of benefits to engaging in these practices. The other thing I'll say is that um, it can work in the opposite direction when you practice it a little bit more. So you can say like, oh, I'm feeling some tightness in my abdomen and I'm not breathing very much right now. And then you'll know oh, maybe I'm feeling anxious. And so you can work the connection in both directions. So the emotion to the body or the body to the emotion. And when that happens, a lot of times when it's the body to the emotion, you have a level of honesty and a depth of realness with yourself because uh, although we sometimes can be deceived, the body doesn't lie. I believe that. Um, and you know, there's different people who might argue something different, but I'll come out publicly and say, I believe the body doesn't lie. Our interpretations can get twisted, (laughs) but if you can get back to the body, you have so much power and capacity and information at your fingertips from that wisdom. It's such a different entry point than the intellect. The intellect gives us smarts but the body gives us wisdom. And so I teach that work um, because I think no matter if you identify as able-bodied or disabled, I think the work is applicable to everybody. And, you know, in the disability community, we sometimes call people tabs or temporarily able-bodied because disability, chronic illness, and um, ultimately the end of our lives are an inevitable part of our journey as human beings. And, you know, that can sound kind of macabre, but um, it also can be a place of empowerment for us to really be choiceful about how we're living our lives over time. Um, What we really have is variation, and variation is normal in all creatures on the planet. And we're designed to support each other and be in an interdependent relationship in community. And when that happens organically, um, everybody's included. And uh, there are ways that everyone gets what they need. And, you know, we've lost a lot of that communal nature. We've lost a lot of those things through 
colonization. And um, I love that disability justice is supporting sort of that reintegration of those things. And then this book that you're reading, you know, sounds like it's really unpacking a lot of that, which sounds really juicy. (laughs) So I'm so grateful for people like you that can make sense of what I think a lot of people really intrinsically feel about their bodies. Thank you. I get so excited. It's my soap. Thank block. you. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. I really oh, appreciate you, you uh, coming on to the Pleasure Principle podcast today. And um, I mean it. I really hope that maybe someday you'll come back and talk to me again about stuff. Absolutely. That would be a delight. And, you know, uh, a lot of my mentors say we teach what we need to learn. And so, Part of me sharing about this work and talking about it is so that I remember to practice it and I embody it a little bit more. So thank you for the opportunity. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on The Pleasure Principle today. There is so much happening at Joyful Sex Education right now. In next month's episode, you'll be hearing my interview with Tony Cellini. Tony is an author with firm footing in the sex-positive leather community. What's the leather community, you ask? Well, you'll need to tune in to find out. Tony has just released a new book. It's called Women in Leather, Shaping Our Own Identity. We'll be talking about that as well as her philosophy of radical sexuality. This is going to be a fun interview. Finally, Joyful Sex Education is beginning the process of jumping ship on Facebook. That platform just does not feel conducive for the deeper conversations around sexuality that are vitally important. So we will be forming a community of people on the Mighty Networks platform. You can join for free. And in the Joyful Sex Education community we will be creating, you will find a safe, supportive environment to ask your questions, make requests for topics you'd like to hear about, and connect with folks that you have things in common with as well as those who can teach us through their differences. You don't want to miss these upcoming episodes, so don't forget to click the subscribe button. We'll see you next time. 